Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In today's episode, we interview Stanley May, a professor of chemistry here at USD. An acclaimed scientist, May works with the Center for Security Printing and Anti-Counterfeiting Technology. Hi, Stanley. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Good. Now, you are the Associate Director for the Center of Security and Printing and Anti-Counterfeiting Technology, um, also known as SPACT here on, on campus. You're also you know, just a professor of chemistry. Um, how long have you been at USD? Uh, I just finished my 24th year here. And so, you know, with a lot of the, the research that you're, you're doing, when did that sort of start? Has this been in the last five, ten years that you've really kind of focused on, um, you know, this particular line of research, or did it really start from the beginning? Well, research was an expectation for the Department of Chemistry from the very beginning. And so when I was hired, I had certain expectations of me as a, as a faculty person. At that time, though, it was a much smaller enterprise in chemistry, uh, we only had a master's program then. Uh, and so over these past 24 years, uh, it, the department and the campus has really, literally transformed in the level of effort and success I think that we've had in research. So uh, my research has evolved over the years. So I'm a laser spectroscopist, a physical chemist. And uh, I think that I started out mainly in, in what you would call basic research. So that's still what I'm interested in. And still all of my findings are founded and grounded in the basic research aspect of it. But just through various collaborations and projects that I was involved in, um, I, was one of the, I was a director for one of the original governor's research centers here uh, on campus and then uh, became involved through going up to Pierre to, to talk to people in Pierre about our centers when we were in the competition. I met the other eventual directors, and uh, John Keller at the School of Mines was one of those. And um, through those meetings, we started talking to each other and, and started collaborating. Um, and he's an engineer and works with engineers, and just some of the applied things just grew out of the basic research. Well, and I, and I was going to say, I should ask, I mean, what does what SPAC specifically focus on? Well, we focus on security for products, for documents, for identification, and anti-counterfeiting. Um, and that can be for almost anything. Um, right now, that technology, or at least one branch of that technology, is licensed to a company called Secure Marking. And that particular technology uses nanoparticle-based inks to make marks that are covert, so you can't see them on products. We can place them on almost, almost anything. Brake hoses is one that they're looking at right now. Um, but it also carries information in it, and so we have reader technologies that can make these things visible and also decode the information on it. And so that whole system approach is very, very powerful because it allows you to, once you read these things, uh, you can access your database. So in supply chain management, I've learned about this, I knew nothing about it before, a big thing is track and trace. Know where everything should be all the time. And so if you know that, um, then you can guard against things in, infiltrating your, your supply chain. It's very powerful technology. Well, and I, you know, 
so interesting to me. I mean, I remember as a high school debater learning about, you know, pharmaceutical, you know, drugs in Africa. And it was literally a debate case that we, we talked about way back when, 10 years ago, was how do you somehow track, you know, the pharmaceutical products that aid organizations might be delivering, but sometimes, you know, are, are caught by um, corrupt governments or, you know, various factions if there's a civil war and they try to steal, you know, those pharmaceutical grade products. What other, you know... I, I, it's also interesting to me when you well, kind of pharmaceuticals talk- is a huge is a huge problem in the third world. Even here, it's one percent of pharmaceuticals are, are counterfeit, and so that can have devastating consequences. And it's just there's not the regulatory systems in in Africa. I think in those countries, they estimate between thirty around thirty or more than thirty percent are are fake. Yeah. What would be some other maybe applied uses for a technology like this? I mean, you talk about the supply chain. I'm curious where where else you might see this technology maybe creep up in the future. Oh, well, definitely in personal identification. So passports, driver's licenses, also in any sort of high value documents, um, those birth certificates, driver's licenses. I mean, we have companies that are interested in um, employing our technologies, integrating it into their um, manufacturer of personal identification. And there aren't very many of those companies because they keep that thing under wrap pretty well, under control. You know, you had won, um, and you had mentioned this earlier, the Giants Vision Award uh, last year your organization did, um, a $20,000 grant. W- what I found interesting was that, you know, this technology has had almost a million dollars of funding. H- how long does it sort of take you to go from maybe the basic science you know, to the applied. I mean, and probably it varies, obviously, with the technology and the, and the discovery. But I'm curious how long that process even takes. It 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 does vary a lot, but everyone who's I've talked to who's an entrepreneur always says, "Be patient. It takes a long time." And for one thing, in these types of technologies, if you're introducing something, a change in any manufacturing process, there's a high cost to it, and so there's a high resistance to it as well. But I think everything is, right now, everything seems to be going pretty well. I would really like to see it, you know, take off and and used in some major application. It would be very gratifying, right? Um, You know, another really cool grant that uh, SPAC has just received. And again, we should mention that this is a collaboration between scientists at the University of South Dakota, uh, the School of Mines and Technology out in the Black Hills. But um, you all... And res- participants at South Dakota State as well. Oh, but South Dakota the, State the as well. people that I mainly collaborate with are at the School of Mines. Um, you all received a $840,000 grant um, to research and develop a handheld device that will read fingerprints and potentially collect DNA. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is like futuristic Star Trek stuff, right? Yeah, right. I mean, how, how would a technology like this work? What is What are the, maybe some of the current barriers that go into fingerprint technology right now? What the grant is for is really a whole system because it's based on the way that the fingerprints are developed themselves. And so... Um, There are challenges to all types of fingerprint development. Some of it depends on, there's no one technique that works for all surfaces. And so some surfaces uh, have very busy backgrounds, do you know what I mean? If so, if you have a lot of graphics or anything on there, then it's hard to develop the fingerprint out of those graphics for something that just uses normal light. And so our technology works by using these nanoparticles, these upconverting nanoparticles, that generate 800 nanometer light, which is further out in the beyond the visible range, so you can't see that. But 
there's no 800 nanometer light in normal room light, and so you can develop these things in normal room light and view them there. And also, the background just kind of fades away. And so, getting rid of the background to image fingerprints is a is a huge challenge in fingerprint development. And so, that's one of the one of the real keys to it. And then we're hoping also that we can use the nanoparticles to essentially, if you want to think of it that way, scoop up the DNA off the, off the fingerprints. Because touch fingerprint technology is, is still tricky. And so they want to be able to you know, have the double whammy of not only having the fingerprint image, but also being able to extract DNA from the fingerprint. Well, and I was going to ask, how, how does the DNA extraction component of it work? I mean, is it you, the particle and then you try to collect the particle, which has captured some of the DNA? That's correct. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy to me. I mean, you, you know, you see the, the CSI, I guess, shows on TV, right? And people kind of taking off pieces of tape and trying to get a fingerprint. I mean, this would totally revolutionize the way... Believe me, it's much easier on CSI <laughs> than it is in real life. They don't show you how hard these people actually work to get to these... Nice results. <laughs> I mean, I think what's so cool is, you know, part of the description is that would be like a, a you know, barcode reader that you would see at a store, right? That you'd almost be able to kind right. of use that. Yeah. I mean, how much when, when you develop new devices? I mean, that's with, a good way to think about it in some ways. It, how much of that, you know, the, I don't know, ergonomics might be the wrong word, but, but the usability of, of a product. I mean, obviously different people are, are researching different things, but, but how much of that goes into the invention of a new product when you're, when you're talking from the basic you know, science component all the way to the applied science, all the way to the actual you know, product itself? Uh, how much of, of a thought process does that? Well, I would say for, again, a lot of this comes out of basic research that had nothing to do with any of the applications. So often you, you'll have an idea for how it might be used, and then you talk to the people who you think might use it. And usually that sort of guides you into what things are working and what doesn't work. Because it's just sitting at your desk in your office, it's really hard to imagine what how customers use things. Right. So I would say that, you know, ease of use or purpose of use, everyone has their own set of priorities for what they want a product to do. And so you have to listen to your, and for this particular, techno, for the technology, not the fingerprint technology, but the one associated with the Giant Vision Award, there will probably be numerous systems that, are, that come out of that that are adapted to a particular purpose or set of purposes. You know, to switch directions a little bit, um, you, know, you talked about kind of your, your background being a little bit more in, in the basic science component of it. How much of a change has it been? It's you still know, what I love, really. You, yeah. I mean, how much it's of a the change? It's that keeps me the most interested. Interested, and it's you know the most intellectually challenging. Well, and that's what I was you know because because you know the the some of the grants and stuff you know those get the the headlines right from right. Our, from our media right, office. Yeah. yeah. How how much has that figured into research? If if you know a new chemist was going to pursue academia, how much should they be prepared to invest themselves in this sort of a, a applied science or this sort of direction? I, I'm curious of, of how much of an influence maybe you know that this. These public, you know, private partnerships have had on public university research. Well, I think, and and most people in science and chemists would tell you, in engineering, it's a little bit different because engineering is, you know, much more focused on you know making a widget type of thing. But that basic science is such a foundation. I mean, usually, if you look at at scientists who go into applied 
uh, technologies, many of them have years of working in basic research and their initial funding comes from places like the National Science Foundation uh, whose purpose is to fund basic research. So it, it, it's really hard to skip over to, you know, you, you can't in, invent a, a radio until you know something about radio waves. You know, no one even knew what it was or generating it. You know, when, when Einstein thought about the concept of the laser was a thought experiment. And, and he said himself, I can't see any possible use for it, but now they're ubiquitous, right? They're, right. they're places you don't think they are, but they're used to carry information and, and code or whatever, so. You know, wh how, how do students? For basic research, I, I think you, it's, it's really hard to say, go into the lab and say, I'm gonna invent something new right. today. You know, it's, a lot of it does come through serendipity, I think. You know, and that was going to be another question I was going to ask was, was like, where does the initial, you know, impulse for some of these ideas come from? I mean, is it kind of a, a progression of learning when you talk about you know, basic science uh, component? Of it? Um, is it is it just kind of, you, you know, you're studying a certain aspect that maybe you've looked at before and you're saying, hey, maybe this would have a different, you know, application or maybe maybe we should take an experiment this way or, or where, where I guess do these, you know, programs, you know, kind of generate from? For me, it's come from talking to other people who are working in different fields. It's amazing, you know, you, you get new ideas and you, you see something that they're working on and you think, wow, what I'm doing might, might fit really well into that. And that's really sort of how this um, security printing came about. I was working with Keller. They have a direct write laboratory at School of Mines where they initially were printing uh, circuits, right? They could print metals and things like that. And we started to think about, well, maybe we could print these nano... And I was interested in the metal surfaces that they were making. Uh, but we started thinking about, well, maybe we could print the nanoparticles themselves, and, and we did. And, and that really sort of took over the research directions. Um, you know, how do students get involved in, in these projects? How, how much do they facilitate the re research, um, you, you know, for, for these, you know, discoveries? Oh, well, I mean, students definitely do the heavy lifting in lab. Uh, you know, so much of my job is, is reading and writing. And, um, and the students, there are several different mechanisms. Of course, students come into graduate school, they're accepted to graduate schools, and usually they choose an advisor uh, based on what their interests are. And we also, undergraduate research is very important to us. It's important. Um, at USD and it's important to SPACT as well. And so we have a, a grant from the National Science Foundation. It's called an REU program, which stands for Research Experiences for Undergraduates. And so we bring in students from all over the country to work in SPACT every year. And we, we have a, a program. I have two of those students in my lab this, uh, this summer. Um, you know, we have meetings. We this year we hiked up to we did the folks march. Oh, awesome! And uh, you know, outside of Rapid City, that was fun. And then, um, really, South Dakota has a a very nice summer symposium at the end of the summer in Pier um, that's put on by the state a state EPSCOR office, uh, where about 150 undergraduate researchers come together. Um, we have a meeting. They do a poster session. It's very impressive. And often there are program officers there from funding agencies or people in science that the students might be interested in. It's really a very, very inspiring event. Yeah, and that was a question that I wanted to talk about as well was, 
you know, the collaborative efforts that it takes. We talked about, you know, the School of Minds of Technology, SDSU. Obviously, you bring, you know, student researchers from, you know, all over the United States, maybe the globe, um, to come for some of these summer research programs. Why is that scientific collaboration important? I think because science has become so multidisciplinary in, in general. And engineers can do things and they have capabilities and facilities to do things that, that I can't do in a chemistry lab. And I think also for developing new ideas, you, you just have such a set of different perspectives. And it's hard to it's hard to collaborate at first. The communication issue is hard. You know, you speak different languages. And a lot of people get frustrated and give up. Uh, but if you stick to it and start listening, you, you learn to hear what they're saying. And, and a lot of new ideas come from that type of environment. I, I think that's sort of one of our philosophies is that and in the REU program, we have students from chemistry, math, physics. I, don't even, I can't even say how many. Engineering. And so it's a very multidisciplinary group. Um, you know, and, and that's where science is going. That's that really is where science is going. Well, I, I was going to ask if you could maybe it's still in, there's still a place for the for the lone genius in the lab, you know. But uh, for for most scientists, I think working with a, a broader community of people who have complementary skills and ideas has proven to be very productive. You know, if you were going to give. Uh, maybe a singular piece of advice to an aspiring, you know, chemist or, or scientist. What would that be? Oh, a single piece of advice. One piece of advice would be to do what what you know you should be doing for your own science and your own, what you feel is right for your uh, career in science. And I don't mean that in a mercenary way, but I just mean most people have a sense of vocation who are doing that. And sometimes um, an administration or even a state government, they'll, they'll go on all in on some sort of fashion. They'll be really hot on something. And, and once that fad fades, if you were all into it, then, then you've hurt yourself. I, th I, think you, I think you have to look inside yourself and, and know what type of scientist you are and know what you want to work on and know what your goals are and, and st stick to that. You know, uh, to kind of switch gears again, and I'll be honest, we'll probably cut this up a little bit um, and make it flow. But yeah, I'm curious how educating students maybe has changed since you've been here. You know, 24 years. You know, have has you know, obviously science. You know, you, you discover new things, but maybe the basic you know building blocks, the the chemistry 101. I don't know how has that changed that significantly. Really hasn't changed that much because that's all still true. You know, it's like the laws of physics. Right. You know what I mean? They're, they're still true. And so there's discussion all the time about how to reform, you know, basic chemical education. And certainly I would say that there's an evolution and there's an evolution of emphasis. Um, but the structure of the atom is pretty much going to stay the same, I think. <laughs> and so um, I think what has changed is sort of the professional development aspect of it. I mean, in chemistry, we try to get all of our students involved in the lab or in internships. Um, almost all of them uh, do some intensive summer research experience. 
many of them uh, go on to work overseas or other parts of the country. So for me personally, I, I've come to see more and more the importance of, of what happens outside the classroom and just how important that is that um, faculty in chemistry don't just teach classes, they're mentors. They're, we're trying to help our students you know, accomplish their goals and, and, and go on and, and really achieve great things. And they do, they really do. How is technology? Our, our, our students have really been spectacular in their accomplishments. You know, how has technology maybe changed um, the way that you deliver, you know, education? Well, it, of course, you know, there's the, the PowerPoint. I have to admit, I'm a little bit old school on that, particularly in physical chemistry. I, I use the board a lot. I, I, I tried PowerPoint for a while, and the student said, just don't. Because <laughs> so, when you're going through a lot of math and derivations and stuff, you really need to be writing that to pace yourself. Um, I would say that the main thing has happened outside the classroom, and that is also what's enabled this nanotechnology revolution. And that's not so much um, what we know about nanotechnology, uh, initially, I mean, the, the initial elements of nanotechnology were described in the late 1800s with gold nanoparticles, but these instruments that allow you to analyze what you've made, that allow you to view them, uh, the electron microscopes. So we have two electron microscopes in chemistry. That's just changed everything uh, because you, before you, you just didn't know what you had. And so if you don't know what you have, you don't know how you're changing it, and it's hard to decide directions. And so that part, and, and, the, and the students at USD, the undergraduates as well as the graduates, that affects them, I would, I would say, tremendously, even whether they're aware of it or not. Yeah. You take it for granted, it's there in front of you, it's the only thing you, it's, it's the only situation you've ever known, but it's, it's just been a sea change in terms of, of what we're able to do. That's, that's really this technology that's enabled this huge nano, nanotechnology revolution. Well, and to back up a second, what is nanotechnology? Well, and that's a lot of people would give you a lot of different answers, but it's basically using particles that are smaller than 100 nanometers, uh, and usually these particles have some special functionality that is somehow related to that small size. And so some things have completely different characteristics as they go smaller. I mean, gold, I used gold as an example. So macroscopically, gold is a shiny metal, gold, you know, yellow metal. Uh, but as nanoparticles, the color changes with size and dimension. So it changes its optical properties. It changes many of its physical properties. And so things like quantum dots, uh, you may not have heard of those, but those are semiconductors. And, you know semiconductors and light emitting diodes, uh, but they change their properties. They change the wavelengths at which they emit light uh, based on size once you get to the nanoscale. And, and so what kind of applications you know, does nanotechnology, what, what maybe has nanotechnology in it right now that I might not realize and use every day? I think of it more from the science point of view. One thing that nanotechnology has is, is really helped uh, revolutionize studies in biology and biochemistry because um, you have nanoparticles that can be used to go into cells and visualize processes in cells, not just um, the cells themselves. And so it's, it's really 
really pretty interesting. The nano, there's nanoparticles in a lot of stuff I'm not sure that I know. Certainly um, some of the carbon fibers and things like that, nanotubes have been used to strengthen materials. You know, obviously, you're kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of, I think, science. What do you anticipate maybe being the next major breakthroughs in chemistry? Wow. I don't know. I don't think anyone ever knows that. I think, I think those things always come out of left field. Uh, it's one reason where I, I always wonder about the wisdom of funding agencies deciding ahead of time what's going to be the next great thing, right? Just like... I think, you know, videotape technology is going to take over the world, you know what I mean? And then there's your DVD somewhere off, and, and then you're stuck, and you've painted yourself into a corner. Um, the next great breakthrough, boy, I don't know, that's a hard one to You know, do, do you see the, a, a tendency maybe for a certain type of project to get funding? Um, you know, is there a particular focus maybe in... in you know, U.S. science on a particular, you know, uh, you know, field of chemistry or, or, you know, frontier, I guess, of chemistry? Well, one thing that what occurs to me now that, well, now that I think about it, I think that um, computational ability um, has become so, so developed now that the, the ability to use computers and theory and calculation to guide designs of things. Uh, to develop new, to guide the development of new materials that will, you can at least predict ahead of time what types of properties they have. So I would say that that may be the next big revolution, you know, in terms of the way we do things. And that's really already happening. A lot of funding agents expect you to have a, a computational aspect to any project that you have. Um, to explain from a physical basis either what you see or to help you guide help guide you to, to what you're trying to achieve. So um, there's a, a, a project called like the materials genome and, and that has that basic idea that just mixing things together and hoping you get something that's useful, um, you can only get so far with that. And so you can use uh, theory and computation because the computers have become so powerful now uh, to guide you in your efforts. You know, I also wanted to talk about the Center for Fluorinated Material. Is that what it's called? Or? Center for Functional Fluorinated Materials. What is that, and what does that center do? And so that center is uh, run by Professor Haran Soon. And so fluorine chemistry is a relatively specialized uh, chemistry. Um, there are not that many people working in fluorinated materials, but... Fluorinated materials have very special properties. You can generate things that are super hydrophobic, and so they uh, repel water very, very strongly. Uh, they can also stabilize chemicals. I think about 30% I'm dangerous here in, in actual numbers of uh, pharmaceutical materials are fluorinated for various reasons. Um, Teflon, for example, you know, the no-stick Teflon, those are fluorinated materials. And for the, the phosphors that I work with, those are fluorine-based inorganic materials. And, you know, they can be difficult to work with because some of the fluorinated materials are uh, highly reactive. What are the major goals of that center? The goals of the center are to become a leader in the research of, of fluorine, new fluorinated materials in the United States and in the world. 
And we have several, you know, investigators. So Haran Soon is already a leader in, in fluorine chemistry, fluorinated organic chemistry. And we have people working in different areas of fluorine chemistry. And so, again, it's this idea of, of bringing people together from different backgrounds to generate some sort of synergy. And so when you do that, you can also compete for, for larger grants um, that allow you to do more programmatic building, you know, infrastructure building. Um, and so I, I, that's the goal. The goal is to come up with new materials, new and useful materials. That's the overall goal. But uh, the goal of the center itself in the, in the near term is to, is to start to compete for leadership in, in that area of chemistry. Um, you know, the last question that we generally like to ask guests, we hope is a little bit reflective. Um, I'm curious after the career that you've had, uh, you know, you talked about kind of the basis being in, in basic science and mm -hmm. how that's still kind of your first love, although your career has really branched out into all of these applied science areas as well. Um, you've seen dramatic shifts in, in chemistry and, and maybe the, the delivery of how you teach chemistry. Um, what do you know at this point in your life for sure? <laughs> what do I know for sure? Um, well, certainly it'll never happen for you if you don't try. I mean, there are, the research is probably 90% failure and 10% success. I think that's something that uh, chases a lot of people away from it. There's a lot of frustration in it. And so I think that you know, you have to persevere in, in anything that you want to do, particularly in research, to, to make it work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stanley. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview Jean Quictusi and her son, Neil Ambrose-Smith, two of the most acclaimed Native American artists living today. Until next time, go Yotes.